Hey guys, how's it going? Hope you're all doing well. Welcome back to another episode of Blockchain and Beyond. As always, I'm your host Farzan. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing uh, DeFi or decentralized finance. And in particular, we'll be looking at uh, DeFi 1.0 against DeFi 2.0. So I'm going to go through uh, both of them. We're going to take a look at how they work, how they differ, and you know some of the problems that DeFi 2.0 is actually trying to solve based on what we've seen happen in DeFi 1.0. Um, and these are this is all based on my research. I'm I'm still learning quite a lot about it, especially with DeFi 2.0. Um, so I'm hoping everything is correct. Um, but it's it's a learning experience for me and hopefully some of you guys as well. So yeah, let's get into it. So most people in the blockchain and crypto space are quite familiar with DeFi 1.0. Um, this would be a decentralized application such as Uniswap, SushiSwap, PancakeSwap and quite a lot of the other um, swap platforms available on the various blockchains. So these allow you to exchange from one token to another without actually giving over custody of these tokens. For example, if I was on a centralized exchange such as Coinbase or Binance and wanted to swap between the tokens, I would actually have to give ownership to these platforms um, and they would carry out on my behalf. But with decentralized exchanges, I can carry out this exchange without actually handing over my tokens. It mostly means that you hold possession of any tokens that you swap to and any tokens you swap from, uh, which I think is overall probably a bit more safer. But the important part with DeFi 1.0 and these swaps is to do with liquidity. So liquidity is what actually enables you to swap from one token to another. For this to happen, if I wanted to swap from USDC to Ethereum, there would have to be someone willing to swap their Ethereum for my USDC. And this is where we get the idea of liquidity pools from. So liquidity pools allow anyone to deposit their tokens in a pair into this pool. So for example, a, another person may come and deposit their Ethereum and their USDC into this liquidity pool. And when someone wants to swap between these two tokens, it will use the tokens within the pool to actually carry out this transaction. And the benefit for the person who deposited these tokens in the first place is they get a percentage of the transaction fees for each transaction, which is executed through this pool. A lot of these platforms go a step further to provide additional incentives for people who have deposited into a liquidity pool by allowing them to stake their liquidity pool tokens for additional rewards, which are generally paid out in the platform's native token. For example, PancakeSwap will pay out additional rewards uh, through the platform's native cake token. And the goal of this is to incentivize people to keep their liquidity locked within these pools as low liquidity can result in quite a few issues, one of these being slippage, where the person transacting with these tokens often pays a higher price than they should because there's a lack of liquidity or funds for them to transact through. So that's the basics of how these swap functions and liquidity pools work, but there's also some downsides. For example, liquidity can be difficult to source, especially on newer platforms, they may not have the initial liquidity to provide users with a smooth experience. Um, and this is quite a common issue as each decentralized exchange platform holds its own liquidity pools. So you may have one platform with high amounts of liquidity and another platform with lower amounts of liquidity, which can cause variations in price between these two platforms. And it can be difficult for users to actually find which platform would be most effective 
for their swaps. The solution to this is actually something called decentralized exchange aggregators. And the most common one is known as OneInch. So OneInch will actually show you which platforms uh, will get you the best price for your tokens and how much the transactions will cost in approximation. This way users can actually make an informed decision and choose the platform which best suits them. Another big issue with these liquidity pools is impermanent loss. So impermanent loss is a result of changing token prices and values over time, which can mean that when you withdraw your tokens, you're actually left with less than what you initially put in. This is probably one of the most common or biggest issues with DeFi 1.0, as people are afraid that their tokens may actually lose value instead of growing in value over time. And that sort of covers the main issues with DeFi 1.0. And now leading on to the DeFi 2.0 protocols. Uh, some of you may have already seen some of these. So the big ones that I've seen are Olympus DAO with the OM token and also Wonderland with the TIME token. And these fundamentally work quite differently to how these traditional DeFi 1.0 protocols work. One of the first things that some of these DeFi 2.0 protocols are trying to do is to introduce some sort of stable coin or stable token where the value of the token is actually backed by a number of assets which is held by a algorithmically uh, controlled treasury. So for example, a user who wants to interact with this protocol may actually decide to deposit some Ethereum or Avalanche or any of these other tokens into this protocol. And how this works is that the, pro the treasury will actually hold the assets and this will begin a bonding process which lasts a few days. So if this person donated approximately $100 worth of a token into a treasury, after a few days they will receive a number of the treasury's tokens which exceeds a value of $100. This incentivizes people to deposit their tokens into this protocol or treasury as they can actually gain some value over a relatively short period of time. And this treasury token, which has now been minted, is now actually backed by some sort of assets. For example, if I deposited one Ethereum and I received one treasury token in return, the theoretical minimum value of this token should be equivalent to the value of one Ethereum, as that is what the treasury is holding and has provided me their treasury token instead. This goes a step further as you can mint these treasury tokens using a number of different assets, so not necessarily just the native token of the blockchain. This allows the, the treasury to hold a sort of basket of goods, which can be used to represent the tokens that they are minting. At this point, there's kind of two actions which can happen with the actual price of this treasury token, which is being traded. So the first case is where this treasury token is actually trading above the price of the assets. That it's backed by. So if the token is trading at $200 but it's only backed by $100 worth of assets, we would say that this token is trading at a premium. So what happens here, it incentivizes people to actually deposit assets into the treasury and mint new tokens. So this actually has two effects. So the first effect will be that it will actually increase the backing of each token. So rather than being for example, $100 worth of backing, it may now be $110 worth of backing, which means that the token's premium has effectively dropped as the token will now be $90 compared to $100. And then the second effect is that there has been an increase in supply of these treasury tokens. So this increased supply of treasury tokens may eventually be sold 
which causes the token to drop from $200 to $190 as an example. And now the premium has dropped even further. So we have $110 worth of backing and the token is worth $190. That means the difference or the premium that it is trading at is now $80. So using an example, at the moment, the price of Ohm or the Olympus token is actually $38 or just slightly over. And the backing of each Ohm is approximately $23. This means that the premium of Ohm is approximately 65%. Or around $15 so this provides an opportunity for someone to make some money so for example as each ohm is backed by $23 worth of assets if I was to deposit $23 worth of assets into this protocol I would receive one ohm which is worth $38 which means I have theoretically made $15 over the course of a few days I could then sell this token for example at $38 which would then push the price lower making the price premium smaller than it originally was and makes Ohm's price more representative of its actual backings. So all of this occurs when the price of the treasury token, such as Ohm, is trading above the price of the assets which it is backed by. However, there's also a case where the price of the token, the treasury token, may be trading at a discount compared to the assets which it is backed by. For example, the price of the treasury token may be $10, but the assets which it is backed by is actually $15, which means there is a $5 price difference here. So what these protocols will allow you to do is actually burn these treasury tokens and in return receive some of the tokens that the treasury holds of the native tokens such as Ethereum or Avalanche or any of the tokens that they accept. So using a swap protocol, I can swap $10 worth of USDC for one of these treasury tokens and then interact with the protocol to burn this treasury token and receive $15 worth of other assets in return, which provides me a net of $5. By doing this, I have actually reduced the supply of the treasury token in circulation, which actually has an upwards effect on the token, pushing the price up so it more closely represents the assets which it is backed by and reduces the discount at which it is trading by. So all of these premiums and discounts can actually be arbitraged away. Um, some of this will be automated to actually get as much value out as possible. And it kind of makes the token self-regulating in a sense, as if the token, the treasury token was trading at a, a premium or a discount, it naturally incentivizes people to actually help balance it out and make the token reflect its true value and this is actually exactly what happens so the treasuries actually have this sort of function built in so when these tokens are trading at a premium so when the treasury token price is above the actual backing what a lot of these protocols do is every eight hours they actually pay out some sort of interest to the holders of these treasury tokens in the form of more treasury tokens so they artificially inflate supply in hopes that people will then sell these tokens and push the price down to actually closely reflect the holdings of the treasury. And the opposite is also true. So when the treasury token is trading at a discount compared to the backing, treasury will actually buy up their own treasury tokens and burn these to actually decrease the supply and push the price back up to its true value. And that's the main idea behind DeFi 2.0. So we're actually removes the idea of impermanent loss as 
the tokens that you're holding are actually reflected by some of the actual holdings that the treasury has. Um, you also don't suffer as much from the fluctuations in the price of these tokens as there are self-regulating systems in place to help balance this all out. And it is still relatively early days for these tokens, but it will be quite interesting to see how it adapts and changes over time. And yeah, uh, that actually covers everything that I wanted to. I hope you guys enjoyed learning about some of the new uh, developments in this area. I think it's really quite fascinating and brings in a lot more uh, maths and it kind of potentially leads the way to actually identifying a way to actually have a stable coin which is backed by some sort of assets and not a stable coin which kind of is pegged to the dollar but rather a stable token which is actually pegged to the price of the assets which it is backed by. And yeah, as always, it's uh, been a pleasure recording this episode for you. If you do have any questions, feel free to reach out. It will be great to hear from you. And yeah, until next time, goodbye.